As we begin the new year together, I need to draw your attention to um, kind of a logistical shift here at the church. We now are transitioning our study and service opportunities in January, which means next week our adult classes will start and our children's classes will start anew and our new teachers will need to be in place. On the way in, you should have received this. It's a listing of remaining service opportunities that must be filled by next week uh, in service to our children. So there's a sign-up opportunity in the lobby. Let me encourage you to take advantage of that. And I really feel like I, I, need, I need to just be clear that I, 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 don't, I don't get it when the church has needs, especially in the service of her children, and you sit it out. Okay. Those of you who can serve, choose not to. I don't get how you think that is the path that pleases and honors God. Okay. So, um, the, the needs are clear. You have this information. The opportunity to sign up is in the lobby. I hope that you'll take advantage of it. Uh, we need you to. Now, I trust by the providence of God that information was prepared completely separate from my sermon, which starts like this, unbeknownst to me. How do you respond when someone rebukes you? That's the only... So, um, in case you missed it, uh, you just got rebuked. So, how do you respond when that happens? What do you do with that? Um, Imagine that you are an aspiring writer. You're pretty good at it. And so you make a submittal to a local local, uh, magazine. This actually happened to a literary uh, magazine down in Louisiana, sent this rejection letter. Thank you for submitting. Unfortunately, the work you sent is quite terrible. Please forgive the form rejection, but it would take too much of my time to tell you exactly how terrible it was. So again, sorry for the form letter. I mean, how would, how would you take that rebuke, especially in something you thought you were good at? That's why you submitted. You thought you were a good writer, and you get that. Um, or if you found yourself to be um, or in the place of Gordon McDonald, who pastored at one time in New York City, and as he stepped outside of their uh, church building in, in Manhattan... He found a homeless man going through the trash bin outside of their church facility. And he says, frankly, I was irritated. And I said, hey, when you're through with the can, put it all back. Make sure the lid is on. And he started to walk away. And the homeless man called out, just a minute. I turned to face him, he says. And the man said, I'll be glad to do what you asked if you'll ask me respectfully. Respectfully. He had me. This man knew disrespect when he heard it. So he said, I sucked in my breath and said, you're absolutely right, and I'm so sorry, sir. When you have finished, it would mean a lot to me if you would please make sure the area is tidy. And the man said, I'd be glad to. And they shook hands. How would you respond if you were rebuked by somebody, say, like a homeless person? How would you deal with that? 
What if you were not in mass like this, but one-on-one? What if you were rebuked by your pastor? What if we went to coffee and you found out it was a setup, okay? And I sit down and I say to you, you know, it's come to my attention that there's, there's an area of your life that's dishonoring to Christ. You know, it's, it's been known to happen. I've even done it when people have bought me the coffee, okay? How do you respond to that? What, what would you do with that? Let's up the stakes a good bit. What if it was Jesus bringing the rebuke? What if he put his arms around you and, and just said, hey, we need to talk about X? Um, you know, as we return to Matthew today, it's interesting. Uh, that's exactly what happens. Um, Jesus issues not one but two rebukes. And the response he gets, honestly, it's sobering. The people hear him, and I really think they get it. And then it says, they walk away. They just walk away. What would you do if Jesus rebuked you? It's possible that he already has. It's more likely that he's about to. And so... um, Perhaps we should pause for a moment, pray, and ready our hearts for that which Jesus has to say to each one of us, okay? Let's pray together. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Father, we pray that in your kindness, you would not leave us alone, but that you would lead us to repentance so that we might know the life you have for us and honor you by it. Help us now to welcome the words of Jesus by the Spirit and the Word now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as Daniel indicated, we are going to return to Matthew today. We will stay there until Jesus raises from the dead, which hopefully will coincide with Easter. At least that's the plan. And... Uh, That means that our focus as a congregation for this first part of the year continues to be, our priority continues to be spiritually to draw near to our good and mighty King. That it would be perfectly appropriate this year as you think about New Year's resolutions, that which you resolve to do by God's grace in the coming year, that drawing near in greater ways in prayer and the Word to Christ would be perfectly in line with where we're going as a church. And providentially, tonight at 6, we gather in this room to pray together for an hour as a church family. Some of you have never come. Maybe this is the year that you should come, that you should learn how to draw near to God when His people pray. Um, So tonight we'll be gathering here at 6 o'clock to pray. I I do hope you'll join us. And uh, today we want to start in Matthew 22, the 15th verse And the conversation that we're going to listen in on happens just uh, two or three days before the end of Jesus' life. Probably Tuesday or possibly even Wednesday of the week that Good Friday, the cross comes. We're two or three days before the cross happens. And opposition to Jesus is ramping up towards that deadly climax that is the cross. Um, 
And so we find ourselves in chapter 22, verse 15, a trap is being set for Jesus. The Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So the Pharisees, who are known to be the Bible guys, the defenders of tradition rooted in the law of Moses, team up here with a group of people called the Herodians. We don't know as much about them, but likely they were political types aligned with King Herod and as a result with the rule of Rome. Um, The attempt, this teamwork is an attempt to trap Jesus by the way he answers their impending question. But first, they butter him up a bit, setting him up so that he will freely speak his mind and blindly fall into his trap. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion. So, you know, when someone comes to you and say, you know, I've sought you out and I wanted to ask you a question because I've watched your life and you're so good at this. You can kind of sense it coming on, just kind of an inflating. You're like, well, let me tell you what I've learned here. And then you'll say all kinds of stupid things because you think you know it all. That's what they're doing to Jesus, okay? They are setting him up um, so that they can trap him. But curiously... What they say about Jesus is true of Jesus, isn't it? He is true. He does teach the way of God truthfully. He's no people pleaser who spins his teaching to to influence some focus group. Here's their question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And at this point, it becomes clear why the Herodians... The political group is involved. They have an interest in taxes being paid to Rome. Um, The tax that's in view is a poll tax. It was exacted only on non-Romans. The Romans were the oppressors. The people of Palestine were an occupied country at this point in time. And so this toll was only on the oppressed ones. And as a result of that, um, Rome was much Uh, would heavily tax the people. They were much resented as a result. Now, the trick with this question is the way they put it to Jesus. Essentially, they say, I want a yes or no answer. Should we pay the tax? Yes or no? Just yes or no, Jesus. It's like an attorney has you on the stand and they say, answer my question, yes or no. and, And this question does not lend itself well to that kind of answer. It's much more nuanced. Um, This is one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? There is no yes or no answer that does not get you in a lot of trouble. And so if Jesus answers this question, yes, pay the tax, then, then he's perceived as aligning himself with Rome, and he estranges himself from the people. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians are going to run back to Herod and back to Rome. And Jesus is perceived as being um, opposing Rome's right to govern, a position 
that could have capital offenses. Tax revolts that were led in the past in this day were um, dealt with by uh, death sentence. So they intend to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place with this question. It is a no-win situation that they have Jesus in 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 their minds. And this this is not news to Jesus. Watch what he says. Jesus is aware of their malice. And he says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus always knows when our hearts are disordered and we are opposing him, not in submission to him. He always knows because he's God, okay? And there are certain axioms that ought to order our lives. For instance, never refuse a breath mint, okay? That's just, that ought to order your life. If someone offers you a a breath mint, never say, no thanks, I'm good. You're not good, or they wouldn't be offering you a breath mint, okay? Just live by it, okay? Here's another one. Never lick a frozen flagpole, okay? Just good advice. Never lick a frozen flagpole. Live by that. Uh, Here's a good one. Sometimes you just need to take a nap and get over it. Live by that, okay? Nap therapy. Best stuff going. Let me give you one more. Never, never debate God, okay? It's a bad idea. It will not turn out well for you. Um, I had a... And a guy I used to know, and uh, he was fond of those cigarettes that are becoming legal out in Colorado, right? And when he would smoke said cigarettes, this was what he wanted to do. He, was, he didn't think very clearly when he did this. He, he was convinced that he could, if he could just, his dream was to play chess with Jesus. He was convinced he could beat Jesus. He was smarter than Jesus when he was high, and that's what he really, really wanted to do. Okay. No matter what your state of mind and what has altered it, it's a bad idea to debate God. Okay. It will not turn out well for you. Jesus knew it was a trap, and he handles it deftly. He says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now, now, the coin in question was a Roman coin. Uh, this is actually a, a picture of one of them. On the front, it bore the likeness of Tiberius Caesar, and on the other side, his mother. I, I have no idea what that's about. But the inscription read this, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. Okay. That's kind of problematic for a fiercely monotheistic Jewish people, right? Worshipful son of the divine Augustus. Dale Bruner says, this portable idol distressed Israel. And it raises the question, should the people of God give money to and so support an idolatrous and so religiously debased state and its cult of emperor worship? Hence the entrapping question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what's really interesting is you notice that Jesus evidently did not have this coin, but his inquisitors did. They had the coin that many Jews felt was idolatrous to pay with. It's just another 
indication of the disingenuousness of their question. So Jesus says to them, they said Caesar's image. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And with this brilliant response, Jesus has snatched the gotcha right out of their mouths. Okay? They are ready to pounce. They've got him no matter what his answer. And he answers in a way that, what do you do with this? Okay? It, is, it is brilliant. His answer is in two parts. Give back or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The practical implication of this simply is pay the tax. You'll see Jesus do this elsewhere in a more spectacular fashion. Uh, he sends Peter to go fish and find in the mouth of the fish the coin required to pay tax. Jesus uh, was not opposed to paying taxes. Um, and in fact, Jesus' teaching on these kinds of things is seen as the basis for later New Testament teaching like this in Romans 13 by Paul. Because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And as a general rule, followers of Jesus should pay their taxes even to corrupt Governments like Rome or, or America, okay? Followers of Jesus, we, we pay our taxes. But just as the Pharisees' question really wasn't about taxes, neither is Jesus' answer because he goes on to take aim not just what we do on April the 15th, but what we are to do every day of the year when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus says, if the denarius bears the image of Caesar and belongs to him, what bears the image of God and therefore belongs to him? We do. We bear the image of God. We wholeheartedly, every area of our life is to be given back to Him all that we are and have. See, it's really not about the tax, is it? It's not just about what you give back to Caesar, though you should give that. It's about what you give back to God. And conversely, what you refuse to give back to God. See, Jesus has turned the tables on them. It's no longer about them trapping Jesus. In a sense, Jesus has sprung a trap on them that exposes the condition of their hearts before the God they say they serve and worship. It's as though Jesus is saying, let's not quibble about one little coin. Let's raise the stakes. Who gets it all? That's really what he's asking. Who gets it all? Who is your supreme allegiance to? And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him, went away. So they have this little exchange with Jesus and their trap turns into really a heart-centered rebuke from Jesus. And they're amazed at his teaching 
They left him and went away. They didn't welcome it. They didn't receive it. They didn't let it shape them or direct them or change them. They marveled at it, but that was all. They just left him and went away. Sounds kind of like church sometimes, doesn't it? You hear the, these eternally relevant words of Jesus, and you marvel at them. You marvel at how, how personal they are, how insightful they are. Sometimes people will walk up to me I'm, as I'm the mouthpiece for those words, and they'll walk up to me and they say, I felt like you were just talking to me. And then we walk out through those doors and leave Jesus and his words here. We don't let them change us. Think with me, honestly, think with me. When was the last time the teaching of the word of God changed you? When was the last time the teaching of the word of God changed you. Render to God the things that are God's. What does that mean for you? To give honor to God with what you have, with what you do, with who you are, with your viewing habits, your use of free time, your spending patterns, the way you talk with your family, the way you talk to coworkers, the way, the way maybe you don't talk to your neighbors. See, Jesus has done it again. All of a sudden, it wasn't about that silly little tax question anymore. And now, all of a sudden, it's not just about those dusty old Pharisees anymore. It's about, it's about you, and it's about me, and whether Jesus really is Lord of all. Lord, of how you study and how you work and how you eat and how you drink and how you buy and how you sell and how you compete and how you relax. Really, the question today I want you to think about is will you marvel and leave or will you give it back, give it all to God? even the thing that the Spirit is bringing to mind right now that you have refused to. The secret thing, maybe. The recurring thing, maybe. Render to God what is God's. That means you. It means all, all of you. Now, is Jesus rebuking you through this teaching this morning. There's a second encounter that I want us to listen in on today. Um, in the next verse, it says, when they heard it, excuse me, I think, can you advance one for me back there? I think I'm dead in the water. Thank you. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question. So same day, you get a sense that the Pharisees and Herodians leave and the Sadducees have been waiting in the wings for their shot at Jesus. The Sadducees have been described as the sophisticated in Israel. In love with Greek culture, in collaboration with Roman power, 
excuse me, thoroughly Hellenized, pleasure-loving, wealthy, aristocratic, and with family connections to religious power. Someone has called them first-century Episcopalians. Someone has, I didn't, someone has, I'll let him stay anonymous. Perhaps their most outstanding trait for our discussion, though, is that they disbelieved in any kind of bodily resurrection, okay? The way to remember that is they call them Sadducees. They're Sadducee. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they're sad, you see. And so, in light of that, the question that's about to follow is not an honest question. It's an attempt to prove Jesus wrong, to discredit him publicly. Here's their question. Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. This is called the Leveret marriage, and it was the way of protecting the family name and the ongoing growth of the nation back in Moses' day. Now, they give you a, a situation. They say, Jesus, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So, too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. Here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, it's an interesting kind of conundrum question. It has the ring of of a hypothetical to it. Um, Probably, this was a favorite case they trotted out when they were in debate with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so they would trot this out and say, okay, so how about this if you guys believe in the resurrection? And what they were trying to do was prove that the resurrection was an absurdity, that it just didn't make sense. So now that the Pharisees had failed to discredit Jesus with their tricky tax question, the Sadducees step up and take a shot at it with a theology question. And this is probably the worst idea of all, debating the Bible and theology with God incarnate. Really bad idea. Not going to turn out well. Um, So, again, they're saying, look at this case, Jesus. It's absurd. You're making God out to be a polygamist. This woman would be a polygamist in eternity if she was married to all seven. Surely God wouldn't do that. So in their mind, their little hypothetical test proves that the resurrection doesn't really exist, could not really exist. And Jesus has no patience with this nonsense. Watch how he responds. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Okay, booyah, you're wrong. That's it, man. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Okay. Two really stinging rebukes. You don't know the scriptures because Jesus says the scriptures do teach the resurrection. They teach it differently than you think they do, but they teach it. And he's about to prove that chapter and verse in a minute. And you don't know the power of God. You doubt God's power to raise the dead. Now, admittedly, resurrection can be problematic. Bodily resurrection can be problematic when you think it through. What happens to people who died centuries ago, millennia millennia ago? Their bodies have gone back dust to dust, we would say. 
or someone who's been cremated and their ashes have been scattered across the ocean. How do you do a bodily resurrection with that? And uh, this is not a new question. And as a result, one of the quotes I'll share with you is not a new quote. It's from Blaise Pascal, hundreds of years ago, philosopher and mathematician, Christian. He says, he says, atheists, what reason have they for saying that we cannot rise from the dead? What is more difficult, he says, to be born or to rise again? That what has never been should be or that what has been should be again? Is it more difficult to come into existence than to return to it? This is the clear teaching of Christianity. The Apostle Paul is as plain as can be. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Within one week's time of this conversation, God, by His great unstoppable, unthwartable death-defying power is going to forever slay the Sadducees' anti-resurrection position because he is going to raise Jesus from the dead on the third day. And Paul says, and he will raise you and me by that same power. And the life we are raised to live will be different from this life. It will be superior in every way. And that's what Jesus is going to teach them now. He's going to teach them that they don't understand, not only do they not believe the resurrection, they don't understand what it's going to be like. So he says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's not that they become angels, but they're like angels in this one regard. They do not marry. In the resurrection life, there will be no marriage. Now, many conclude as a result that there is no sex in the resurrected life, at least not as we know it. And I know some of you are thinking at this moment, whoa, slow down, that's not heaven, okay? That is not heaven. Pastor, you're wrong, or I, I hope you're wrong, okay? You better be wrong, because that can't be heaven. So... Um, let me try to explain the imponderable uh, just for a moment and talk about the resurrection life. Um, the resurrection life is always presented as greater than this life. It's a greater than equation. Okay? It's greater than this life. Um, it seems that, that this is the principle that lies behind it. You could say your best life is not now. It's going to be in the future. It's not now. The resurrection life is going to be better in every way than your life now. Okay. Um, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If there's no sin, that life is going to be better in every way. Now, as sex reflects intimacy... I'd like to think that our relationships there, you could consider to be super sexual. That is, they're going to be better than our best, most intimate relationships now. All of our relationships will reflect a greater intimacy then. Um, whatever our relationships are 
now, they will be better then in every way. And this is where historic biblical Christianity differs from, say, the Mormons, for an example, who, who hold to a kind of celestial marriage where the marriages of this life continue for eternity and maybe even an eternity with multiple partners, which seems to me the most honest reading of Jesus here is that that is exactly not what Jesus is teaching. Okay. Clearly, Resurrection life is not just an extension of this life temporally, forever. It is to be anticipated as superior in every way, including our sexuality. It will be better than our best life now. So Jesus, having addressed their misunderstanding about resurrection life, now addresses their core assumption that there is no resurrection at all, which is what they really believe. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, this is another rebuke, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, the, the Sadducees were fans of the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, it's called. And the rest of the Bible, they thought, was just commentary or extrapolation on that. So they lived in those first five books. <clears throat> so where do you think Jesus goes to rebuke their understanding of the resurrection? Back to Exodus, one of those first five books. And he says to them, have you not read even the books you cherish? Exodus 3, 6 contains that teaching, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Essentially, Jesus is saying that these dead guys, long dead by the time Moses wrote this, maybe as long as 500 years dead, are spoken of as living. I am the God of these guys. Not I was the God of these guys. I am the God of these guys. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be resurrected because of who God is, the kind of God he is, and the kind of power that he wields. He's not the God of corpses, but the God of the living. Note, too, that Jesus considers these words of Moses all the way back in the book of Exodus to be the words of God. He says, haven't you read what was said to you by God? Not just Moses. This should really encourage you in your reading of the Old Testament that you are reading what Jesus believed to be the words of God for us, not just the words of Moses or some man. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Evidently, a crowd had gathered to watch the debate. Who would want, who would want to miss this? Okay. And they too were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Of the Sadducees, we don't know what their response really was. The next verse just says that they had been silenced by Jesus. Um, there's no evidence of worship of a God who raises people from the dead. Just silence. And like the Pharisees and the Herodians, it would seem... They left unchanged. 
So let me ask you, are you a functional Sadducee? Could Jesus be rebuking you because of your lack of knowledge of the Scriptures, in particular those that cheer us with the hope of a sure resurrection? Listen again to Paul. This is one that you should have read at the ready. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know and believe God's promises about our resurrection in a way that you have a hope that affects and shapes even your suffering? Do you grieve, but not as one who does not have hope? Let me address this particularly to moms, moms of young children. Does the sure hope of resurrection temper your fear and grief when your children are sick or suffering? Or when they're just exposed to sickness? Or when you think they might have been exposed to sickness because you read about it on the web. You know you know how this plays out in your minds? Um, see, this hope, this hope of a God who raises the dead to a whole different kind of life and health and relationships is your sanity. It's your only protection from being swallowed up by imaginary fears and very real fears that happen. This happens. And this is our hope. It's the only hope we have. And one of the antidotes to this Sadduceeism that we can offer here at North Wake are our Sunday morning adult classes. We call them life change classes. Gifted teachers, teachers that people are paying big bucks to listen to down the road, teach some of these classes. Classes on books of the Bible to understand them, on doctrines and theology about God so you believe the right things like we're talking about today. You don't fall into these traps. Practical classes about marriage and family life, money, are you in one this year? You should be. They start next week, next Sunday morning. You can sign up for a class online. Go to our website and go to the Adult Life Change class page, and there's a link there for you to sign up for a class. Don't be a Sadducee. Know the Scriptures and the power of God. They're related. Okay. So, how do you receive a rebuke? Did you get one today? Was God pressing on you about offering all of your life up to him, even the area that you've been holding back on, something that you want to control and do what you want with, about knowing the scriptures and hoping in his promised resurrection power, or maybe about just the silliness of debating God rather than just trusting him? Don't be amazed at Jesus' teaching today and just walk away. 
welcome and embrace the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, where we're sorry for our sin and unbelief, and we turn our ways by God's mercy away from that which we've been doing. And during this time, the worship team's going to come and lead us now in closing song that praises and exalts Jesus. Let me encourage you. If God's pressing you, rather than sing about this, you should use this time to pray. Grab a friend near you and pray. If you want to come down front and pray, uh, you're welcome to do that. We will have women's ministry leaders and pastors and elders in the front rows who are available to pray with you. Just tap one of us on the shoulder and we'll pray with you. But uh, let's, let's not just be amazed and walk away. Let's be amazed and welcome the kindness of God that brings us to this place. Okay? Let's stand and worship Jesus together.